This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarterbin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will usually select sort of at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 67th episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, we're continuing our habit of episodes that are purely designed for the purpose of shameless bandwagon jumping and search engine optimizing. Kind of like my buddies at Back to the Bins always do. This one is time to be released around the return of the X-Files to the Fox TV network. Today I'm covering the X-Files issue number zero, cover dated 1996. But first, a little feedback. On episode 65, I wrapped up my look at the new universe, covering Justice, number 17. I got some feedback from Shag, the irredeemable Shag, who used to be from the Fire and Water podcast, but who's now from the Fire and Water Network. After patting himself on the back for providing the opening of that episode, he said that he'd been playing catch-up and listened to the most recent three New Universe episodes. So much fun. Like you, I'm a fan of self-contained New Universes, so to speak. The New Universe, 2099, The Ultraverse, Dark Horse's Comics Greatest World, Tangent, Amalgam, etc., 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 I love the new universe at launch. I bought all the first issues and initially stuck with Starbrand, Cyforce, DP7, and Nightmask. Somewhere along the line, I dropped DP7 and Nightmask. Not due to lack of love for the characters, but I suppose I had to make a choice. I followed Starbrand and Cyforce through the pit, the draft, and so on. Now, interrupting here, we'll say that I picked up both of those new universe. OGNs over the last year or so, The Pit and The Draft. And I don't think either one counts as a Quarterbin book. I can't remember, but I do think I'm just going to read those soon, now that I'm sort of on a bit of a new you roll. So I won't cover them here, but when I read them, they'll be on the Comics Reading Journal. Shag wasn't sure that he'd pick up the new book, but he will try it on the Marvel Unlimited digital app in six months. Now, I've only heard one person mention that Starbrand and Nightmask title, but it was a positive mention. Then Shag sharpens his claws and rips me a new one. Bearing in mind that I haven't read these comics since the 1980s, I felt you may have been too harsh a critic of Starbrand and Nightmask. The Starbrand character was very down-to-earth and likable. He felt like a real guy who was doing his best at the hero racket and making some mistakes. Nightmask, while he was a ripoff of the movie Dreamscape a few years before, felt very creative and interesting. Considering the amount of story packed in and decent art, I'd still put those up against modern $4 decompressed standard superhero comics any day. Again, I'm wearing 30-year-old glasses on these memories, so maybe I'm being too generous. Now that's interesting because I got the comment on the Starbrand issue that maybe I was being too nice to it. He then makes the startling admission that he'd never read Justice. But I heard good things about the book. 
While it starts in the middle of a plot, it sounds like this issue was a good jumping on point. Or perhaps you just described it really well. Aw, oh, thanks, Shag. But if it's either me or Peter David doing a good job, it was probably Peter David. But, he continues, if you're looking for a new universe whipping boy, look no further than Kickers, Inc. It was the NFL Super Pro of the new you. Seriously, look it up. Second in line for mocking would be Spitfire and the Troubleshooters. Ridiculous name and equally weak early issues. They rebranded and dropped and the Troubleshooters in an effort to keep the book alive. You know, when it comes to Kickers, Inc., I have to totally agree with Michael Bailey's assessment. Shag's absolutely right. Those two titles, Kickers and Spitfire, are all over the quarter bins, and I've never been tempted. No, not even once. Looking forward to more Dead Universe coverage, keep up the great work. Now, Shag, as you all know, was one of the brains behind the short-lived Ultraverse network, the failure of which I have occasionally mocked Shag for. And I'm sorry, buddy. It's just my grief speaking. I really miss those shows. I would love to hear you talk about the Ultraverse again, Someday, somewhere. The Sutherlands also sent in feedback on that episode, saying that they enjoyed it, despite having almost zero familiarity with the new universe. But mostly, they wanted to comment on my offhand remark about being a fan of the 1980s TV show, The Equalizer. They tell a story of meeting George Lazenby, because of course, Darren and Ruth have met a James Bond and they recounted a story that they heard Lazenby tell about him being up for that role, being really very close to it, before it going to Woodward. And on Woodward, they said, of course, he had many other great roles before and after The Equalizer, but our favorite was a short-lived comedy mystery he did after The Equalizer called Over My Dead Body. It was great fun to see him acting against type and perfect for me with my love of mysteries, and I wish it would make its way to DVD so I could see if it holds up over time or if my fond memories are just nostalgia. Thanks for the feedback, guys. And thanks go out to Noel from the Masters of Carpentry film podcast for sharing the episode on Twitter. Again, thanks, everybody. I really do appreciate any and all comments. And now, on to our book, for this episode. The X-Files Zero Issue at a cover price of $3.95, meaning I acquired this book at more than a 93% discount. I know what you're thinking. $3.95 sounds pretty expensive for a book from 1996, but it was double-sized, so there's that. There were a range of variant covers for this issue, and the one I have is the Fox Mulder cover by John Van Fleet. It has the official X-Files logo and font and is a tan and brown and burnt orange color scheme with a decent drawing of David Duchovny as FBI Special Agent Fox Mulder. Looking through the comic book database, I think I'm going to post the Dana Scully cover on the blog spot though because, you know. She is hot. Dude, Shag, yes, that's right, but your segment is over, okay? Man. 
The story, titled of course, Pilot, was adapted by Roy Thomas from the original teleplay by X-Files creator Chris Carter, with art by John Van Fleet. Column National Forest, Northwest Oregon. A girl runs through the forest. When she falls, a dark figure approaches, and they both become enveloped in light. Karen Swenson's body is later found by detectives with two small marks on her back. Would that be the class of 89, detective? One asks. It's happening again, isn't it? Later, in Washington, D.C., FBI Special Agent Dana Scully is summoned to a meeting with Division Chief Scott Blevins and a seemingly anonymous government official, some smoking dude. Scully is assigned to work with Special Agent Fox Mulder, who has developed a consuming devotion to an unassigned project outside the Bureau mainstream. Are you familiar with the so-called X-Files? Well, Scully is, knowing that they relate to investigations of unexplained phenomena. She infers that her role in this assignment is to use her scientific knowledge to discredit Mulder's work, although Blevins never directly tells her this, and he's even evasive when she asks if that is, in fact, his intent. Scully introduces herself to her new partner, who shows her evidence from the Swenson case via a slideshow, back when the phrase slideshow did not mean a PowerPoint presentation. He notes that she was the fourth member of her high school class to die under mysterious circumstances. Mulder also notes an unknown chemical compound found on Swenson's body, as well as similarities between her death and others from across the country. Mulder tells her he has a theory. Do you believe in the existence of extraterrestrials? Scully expresses her doubts. The pair fly to Oregon, and when they're over the town of Belfleur, they encounter unexplained turbulence. Mulder's response? This must be the place. As the agents drive into the woods near the town, the car radio malfunctions. Mulder marks the spot of this event by spray-panning an X onto the road. What the hell was that about? Scully wants to know. Oh, you know, probably nothing. Mulder arranges for the exhumation of the third victim, Ray Soames, despite the protests of Dr. J. Nemin, the medical examiner. When Soames' coffin is opened, a deformed body is found inside, which Scully concludes is not Soames, but maybe an orangutan? This, however, does not account for the small, gray, metallic implant she found in the boy's nasal cavity. Mulder and Scully visit the psychiatric hospital where Soames was committed before his death and meets two of his former classmates, Billy Miles, in a coma, and Peggy O'Dell, bound to a wheelchair. Peggy suffers a nosebleed during the agent's visit, and we see that she bears marks similar to Karen Swenson. Outside the hospital, Mulder explains to Scully that he believes the victims to be alien abductees, Scully doesn't want to hear this, believing that there must be a scientific explanation. That night, the agents investigate the forest. Scully discovers strange ash on the ground, leading her to suspect cult activity. However, a local detective arrives and orders them to leave. Driving back to their motel, Mulder and Scully encounter a flash of light 
at the spot their car had malfunctioned earlier, where he had spray-painted the X. Mulder is extremely excited when he realizes that nine minutes disappeared after the flash, a phenomenon often reported by alien abductees. At the motel, Mulder tells Scully that his sister Samantha vanished when he was 12, which drives his passion for his work on the paranormal. The agents receive an anonymous call, telling them that Odell was killed in traffic. They visit the scene and find her body, but no wheelchair. In the meantime, their motel rooms are set on fire, their evidence destroyed. The medical examiner's daughter contacts the agents for help. At a local diner, she tells them that she has awakened in the middle of the woods several times. Her father and Detective Miles arrive and take her away. Mulder and Scully return to the cemetery to exhume the other victims, only to find their graves already dug up and the coffins missing. Mulder realizes that the comatose Billy Miles is likely responsible for bringing the victims to the woods. Examining Miles seems to confirm that he was indeed there, despite being comatose, for the distinctive ash from the forest is on the bottom of his feet. Returning to the woods, they again encounter Detective Miles, but hear a scream and find Billy nearby with Teresa in his arms. There's a flash of light and Billy and Teresa are recovered unharmed. A few weeks later, a well, and no longer comatose, Billy Miles is put under hypnosis and observed by Mulder, Scully, and their superiors. He recalls how he and his classmates were abducted in the forest as they celebrated their graduation. They were subjected to tests by the aliens and killed when the tests failed. Levin says that the scientific basis for the claims seem wholly unsupportable. You're aware of that, Agent Scully? And then, like a boss, Scully displays a small glass vial containing the nasal implant from the first body. I kept it in my pocket. It's the only piece of information not destroyed in the motel fire. I had a lab run a test on it. The material could not be identified. She exits the office and passes the smoking man in the hallway. Later, Scully hears from Mulder that Miles' case files have been disappeared. The paperwork we filed, it's gone. And then in a scene straight out of Raiders of the Lost Ark, the smoking man stores the implant in one little box in a vast evidence room. Pulling back, we see that the evidence room is located somewhere deep inside the Pentagon. If you're a diehard X-Files fan, join me, Agent Shadow. And me, Agent Chelsea. As we cover all X-Files episodes and movies one by one. Just search iTunes for X-Files and subscribe to X-Files Truth. Do you like oversized comics? Comics with extended page counts like DC's 80-page Giants, 100-page Super Spectaculars, and Dollar Comics Giants? Or how about Marvel's King Size Annuals? 
giant-sized specials, and double-sized issues? How about the physically larger treasury comics? Then welcome to the King Size Comics Giant Size Fun Podcast. Join me, your host, Kyle Benning, on a one-man mission to brave the elements and review oversized comics in my car during my lunch hour. And we're back. I discovered The X-Files about halfway through its run. I mean, I knew of it. I had even heard good things about it. I just hadn't watched any of it. When the show was getting up and going back in 93-94, I had just gotten out of my second round of college, and I was cobbling together part-time jobs as an adjunct college professor, being self-employed as a CPA. Emily was not yet in school, and I was doing as much of the caregiving as I could around my inconsistent work schedule. We were also heavily involved in a new church that was getting up and going, so yeah, TV was not the top priority for me at this point. It was around the time that the first movie was coming out that I was getting interested, and as I still do to this day, I spent a lot of time at libraries back then both on my own and with Emily, taking her for for books, as well as kids' programs and all of that. And they had a bunch of the X-Files episodes on VHS. I think it was two episodes per tape. And over the course of about a year, between those VHS tapes, novelizations, and unofficial episode guides, I got caught up on the first five seasons or so. And eventually, once I showed a few episodes to my wife, She wanted to be included, so I did that watch-through catch-up with her as well. And then probably by season six, season seven for sure, she and I were watching every week. The two of us even went to see that just short of mediocre second movie in the actual theater, paying actual money. And you know, I don't like to do that. So we were fans, and even to varying degrees, liked those later seasons. And then just a year ago, maybe, probably less than that, Emily started her own watch-through. I don't know if that was related to the announcement of the new series, you know, the return to TV, or if it was just a hole in her geek resume, I don't know. But I watched the pilot episode with her, and some of the really good episodes from those first few seasons as well. So what I'm saying is, I've seen the pilot episode many, many times, including once pretty recently, so I know this story really well. And boy, did this issue cover everything that happened in that episode. It is, of course, an adaptation of the pilot, but I think a more accurate term would be abridgment, because nothing's been added. And in terms of what is there on the page, and I'm including both the art and the dialogue in that statement. After reading this issue through the first time, it struck me how all of the key moments and key lines were were in there, and key moments and shots seemed really well recreated. And then just to double-check that notion of mine, I sat down and watched the episode with the comic book open, and it is even more accurate and pure than I thought it was. Now, as anyone who's listened to Ryan Daly's Secret Origins podcast knows, If you want someone to do a faithful adaptation, bordering on recreation, then Roy Thomas is your man. 
I would guess that over 98% of the dialogue in this book is word-for-word lines from the TV episode. There are two errors that I'll mention, but every other change was there for clarity, maybe to make up for a few sentences that got cut, or, or they were maybe rearrangements of sentences. A few lines moved from Scully to Mulder, maybe for no reason other than to fill up the panels, you know, in, in, in the right manner. There was one scene of Scully quietly contemplating some advice that got cut, and one of the most memorable scenes involving Scully and a bathrobe and bug bites, that was shortened a bit. Probably the most significant change is the very first sentence. The pilot says the following is based on actual documented accounts, while the comic refers to them as actual eyewitness accounts. I wonder if there's a legal thing there, because in a book with almost no other changes to the script, it does stand out. You know, in one spot, the word pajamas is changed to nightgown. But that's about it. I'm, I'm being picky about these changes because there were so few of them. Again, almost everything is a word-for-word recreation of Chris Carter's original teleplay. Now, I was just about to say that there's nothing added, but that's not exactly true. If you've watched The X-Files, you know that one of the identifiable characteristics of that show are the date and location chirons that designate a change in location or a new date or time for a scene. They were very spare in the pilot, and obviously they later became a part of the visual storytelling of the show. But Thomas is smart enough to know that this later became a part of the X-Files visual language, and so, well, in comic book terminology, we would say he retconned that feature onto the original pilot. So this book has a lot more of those chirons than the actual pilot does, which totally makes sense. It would be weirder, it would feel less authentic if those were missing from the book, even though it would, technically speaking, be more accurate to the pilot. There was one additional chiron that I didn't like right at the end, and that has Scully living in Annapolis, which I don't think was canon in the show. She does have a Navy background, so it's not a crazy notion that she would be familiar with, with Annapolis. But I grew up in Maryland, in the Washington suburbs, and my impression was that Annapolis to Washington, D.C. was actually a very long commute. I did not know anybody making that commute for work. Silver Spring, Maryland, Columbia, Laurel, Burtonsville, those were all considered suburban Washington. But Annapolis was thought of as, as a different part of the state in my mind. It was not a, a bedroom community for folks who worked in the district. I know, I know, this is what listening to Dave's Daredevil podcast has done to me. It's driven me to a variety of online mapping services. The internet has this particular drive as only about 45 or 50 minutes, but I don't think that fully takes into account the traffic on Route 50 getting into Washington. And also, for folks working in D.C., it would be all about the metro line. And again, Annapolis looks reasonable on a map, but logistically, I just don't think it works too well. So adding that as where Scully lives, 
That I didn't like. I do want to mention the two errors that I found. Now, I watched this episode with subtitles, and I'm guessing Roy Thomas did not. I wonder if he actually had a script that he was working from, or if he was transcribing from a VHS of the broadcast. Because on the show, Scully refers to the compound that was found on the victims as organic, but in the comics, it's inorganic. I don't know which is more correct scientifically. But it is definitely a change. I mean, it's the exact opposite. Similarly, after they lose time, and they have this argument, uh, rain is pouring down, Scully on the show says that time can't be lost because it's a universal invariant. That one sounds like it makes sense. Universal invariant means it can't change. That sounds right, as opposed to what she says in the comic, which is universal variant. Again, the exact opposite. So I imagine that's just an issue of mishearing the words. The reason I'm spending so much time on the process of the adaptation and not so much on the story itself is because the story is great. It was a really good pilot episode, and generally considered a very successful pilot. It sets the template for the character roles and their relationships, sets up the world that they operate in, gives us some of Mulder's backstory and the conspiracy. The smoking man appears. It accomplishes a lot and tells a great contained story while doing so. There's not a lot to add in terms of my analyzing the details of the story because it's a really, really, really good story. On to the art, because it's also worth talking about both on its own and in comparison again to the TV show. It's not photorealistic by any means. It is traditional comic art with a little extra shadow because it's, it is the X-Files. But what stands out, as with the scripting, is the similarities to the visuals on the TV episode. Like I said, I'd seen the show probably six, eight months before reading the issue, and it struck me how well things were captured. Uh, again, how similar it was, how faithful it was. But it wasn't until I was watching the show while looking at the comic that I realized just how similar. And, and first, the likenesses are terrific. And, and it's every character from the leads to the most obscure. I assume that that's some sort of legal deal, that since they're adapting an actual full episode of the show, that character likenesses are included uh, in that license, as opposed to creating new original stories in the universe, where getting the likeness rights from the performers is actually a separate negotiation. That's just a theory, but uh, I'm pretty confident in that. And, and, and it goes beyond character likenesses. Most of the panels are direct recreations of particular shots in the show, the angles, the shading, the poses. Again, this is a hypothesis, but it would not surprise me if the script that Roy gave to John Van Fleet included timestamp references to the episodes, screen caps, for what he wanted drawn. I'm not saying it was traced or lightboxed or anything like that. I, th I think it's actual legitimate comic book art. It's just very strongly referenced. But again, on its own, it does feel like a comic book. So I am saying that the art really does work. Again, there were a few changes in the art. One was that on the show, in Scully's intro scene at the FBI, she's wearing a very light jacket. And in the comic, it's much darker. Although they do have the same pattern. 
Mulder's shirt was white, so maybe for the comic, when he didn't have, obviously, the, the visual aspect of, of motion, um, they thought that a bit of contrast between the characters worked better. Another was right at the end when Scully passes the smoking man in the FBI hallway. In the show, he's not smoking. I, I guess that was not his defining character trait at the time. But in the comic, he definitely has trails of smoke following him. And again, like the Chirons, that's a nice addition. That's an appropriate addition for an adaptation of the story. And as with the scripting comments from earlier, these thoughts on the art similarities are not complaints. I'm not saying these are bad things, are, are criticisms, are problems. It was actually kind of cool. Let me, let me put it this way. If you want to see a TV episode put onto a comic book page, this is it. I mean, that is exactly what this book is. The Verdict on X-Files number zero. When you have a great foundation, one of the basic rule is just don't screw it up. And they definitely did not do that. I've read about 20 issues of the Topps run of X-Files, their original stories, and some of them capture the sense of the series better than others. If you can find a full story of those in the cheap bins, two issues, three or four, whatever, it's probably worth your time if you're a fan of the show. Topps has also done a handful of issues like this, direct adaptations of episodes, one-off issues, I think, just from the first season. Definitely pick those up. I've read at least one other of those adaptations for the episode Conduit, and it was similarly strong as this one was the pilot. So if you want a jumping-on point to the series, either the TV show or the comics, I guess, this issue, issue number zero, is a pretty good place. Definitely a quarter-bin steal, even more so for the discerning X-Files fan. That wraps up my coverage of X-Files number zero, bringing episode 67 of the Quarterbin podcast to a close. In episode 68, there's going to be a little man-bat action happening here as we cover Showcase 94, issue number 11, from DC Comics, cover dated November 1994. If you have any questions or comments about this comic, the episode, or the podcast in general, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening.